This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Zach Moore, and you know, when I was gone, Ken Tripp, he, you know, he covered for me for quite a few weeks, so I think it's only fair we give him a week off, and uh, I'm taking the show on today, guys, but don't worry, I'm not alone, uh, and we'll get to our guests in a second, but you know, we've had kind of a mini-series of podcasts uh, during Ken and I's time here on Standard Robot called Star Trek Origins, where we explore certain, dare I say, nexuses, uh, both real and fictional, that became uh, defining touchstones for the franchise for years to come, uh, and you can find these previous discussions in Standard Orbit 139, 145 and 161 but today we're bringing it back in a big way and examining how the often maligned third season is responsible for a lot of what we now deem iconic star trek honorable Klingons, cleon romulan coexistence lady killer kirk <laughs> the list goes on and we're honored to be joined by author and webmaster of the movie blog mr darren mooney what's up darren hey how are things zach pleased to be Good. here Good. And so it's, it's uh, first of all, before we get started, it's, uh, it's it's great to be podcasting with you again, man. Darren and I uh, became associates through the uh, the the Xcast. Uh, Tony Black, uh, who uh, hosts uh, Primitive Culture here on Trek FM. Uh, so so we're all we're all uh, uh, just becoming one one world podcast, right, Darren? That's our goal. We are sort of conglomerating. There will be only one podcast group. <laughs> but uh, no, it is. We're actually, um, and I think it's it's funny because to spoil the illusion of podcasting, we recorded several months ago, but they're actually being released, I think, at the moment. So if you sort of like this combo of, of myself and yourself, you can sort of tune into I think the X Cast this week, and we'll be talking about grotesque, possibly, possibly oh, not that... talking grotesquely about grotesque. But is that is that this week? I, I believe lose that track. Might it's be funny, this yeah. Week. So yeah p- well, pulling back, pulling back the curtain, as they say, we did. Yeah, <laughs> we did these it is the illusion. Your podcast is not broadcast live into your ear, unfortunately. Every time you play it, um, I feel like yeah, I appeared behind the curtain. I've ruined Christmas. I feel like I've ruined <laughs> Christmas now. The illusion is just gone. You know, before we dive into today's topic, which you yourself suggested, so thank you for that. It kind of fit into, uh, like I said, our, our little mini-series about Star Trek Origins here. Um, let's talk a little bit about your Star Trek fandom, how it developed over the years, and where it is now. Well, I mean, in terms of my Star Trek fandom, I grew up in, what I obviously I'm Irish. Um, as you can tell from my distinctive Irish brogue, I sound exactly oh, I, I like Oh, I thought Colum- you were Scottish. I'm sorry, I'm mistaken. <laughs> sort of Celtic-y. <laughs> uh, some sort of vague British Isles residence uh, sort of thing going on. But uh, uh, yeah, my accent is, is not necessarily distinctively Irish. But I grew up over there, and when I was young, I moved over to Ghana in West Africa. My dad had to get a job there. And what I would do is I would have people in Ireland send me tapes and copies of television from Ireland over to Ghana. And my gran and my granddad were big Star Trek fans. In particular, my gran was a fan of The Next Generation, stuff like that. So she would send me over tape recordings of these episodes that she got off the TV, which you'd watch on, say, Sky One over here. This would have been when The Next Generation was on the air and stuff like that. So I would get random episodes every once in a while. And I remember in particular getting Gambit from the... You know the seventh season of The Next Generation? You know, Gambit Part 1. I remember getting mm-hmm. Gambit Part 1 and having to wait, like, five years until I saw it on syndicated reruns at 
uh, and actually seeing how that episode resolved. Um, so now, I had that. Now, sort if, of... I, if I recall correctly, and to cut you off, but if I recall correctly, uh, the, the cliffhanger is what like Riker and Picard like fire on the Enterprise. Is that, is that the cliffhanger? Yeah. Or okay, that's it exactly. It's it's Picard and Riker become space pirates because Gene Roddenberry's not around anymore and can't enforce <laughs> that no space pirates rule. So why not? Let's go with it. It's the final season. We'll just Very we'll good. just embrace it. But it it, it um, I was so I grew up with sort of Star Trek in that sense, and then later on when I moved to Saigon when my dad moved back we had a little like, sort of Star Trek fan club of sort of small country town like it's a very small country town but while we were there I sort of uh, fell in with a group of people and what we do is we get people in the States who would occasionally send us videos and we'd meet once a week and we'd watch them during the season so we would have watched like Broken Link I remember watching Broken Link with a bunch of Star Trek fans in a small Irish town probably like a couple of months after it aired in the US but several months before it aired in the UK and stuff and so it sort of evolved from there and I mean I'm actually I retroactively discovered the original series series uh which is the thing which is kind of great because i got it in the, you know the vhs wave that came around like 99 2000 where they'd have three episodes on on each tape and so like see, it I've, was... see, I've seen that i've seen that in the uk where you have three or four episodes on a tape we never had that here we had uh, one episode per tape one episode per tape that is ridiculous and i assume ridiculous. They, they cost like what 13 15 dollars or your well for us it was pounds sterling but yeah it was pounds. 15 or 20 bucks for, for one <laughs> for one videotape uh i i remember me and my family we had a handful of like season one tng episodes because those weren't really in syndication very often so it was like oh look these these weird episodes with the record doesn't have a beard you know <laughs> it's like some some weird and they're wearing suits thing. that are giving them back problems yeah <laughs> yeah no i had a similar sort of thing going on like we, we yeah you're lucky you're right in that we're lucky we had three episodes i remember like the advent of dvd just changed everything in terms of watching television because then you could buy like originally it was like eighty dollars or eighty eighty pound for a set, but now you know over a couple of years it was like you could get twenty six episodes of something on television for twenty euro or twenty dollars, which would be unimaginable to me as a child. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't get over how cheap I could get Miami Vice or whatever. So so that's <laughs> how I how I you <laughs> should well, everybody series. should watch Miami Vice. Everybody and should ma- watch. Magnum PI, all the good stuff, right? Yeah, all the great stuff. So that's sort of how I how I got into it. That was sort of the basis of my fandom. So you are not a TOS died in the wool proper fan, are you? Harsh. I, I get in a cold reception on this podcast, and I, I like that the reception is going to get even colder when I'm like, you know, season three. Season three is horribly underrated. In my defense, I feel the need to say, in my defense, when we were airing, uh, when I was watching television over here in Ireland in syndication during the day, we didn't air a lot of TOS. We didn't air a lot of the original series. We tended to cycle through. Um, the next generation we tend to cycle through voyager we didn't cycle through deep space nine actually which i found interesting i think that's because serialization sort of made it more difficult to have on at like five o'clock in an evening because i would remember when i was a kid going to school i'd come home from school i'd do my homework sit down to dinner and like the next generation beyond i just sort of watch it that way i actually had to seek out the the original series and i think actually this is probably a little embarrassing for somebody who's on a podcast about the original series i think my first encounter with the cast of the original series was watching the movies because uh, the movies were available to rent in the local uh, sort of you know blockbuster store or Extravision is what we had here. So I sort of I got to know Kirk through the films almost before I got to go back and go, hey, who's that guy? He's not wearing a wig. Uh, well, that's not that's not Kirk at all. That's a, first of all, that's up for debate. Um, okay, second of all, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, nothing nothing to be ashamed of for the movies. I mean, like uh, to me, like my my Star Treks are because I'm a child of the next generation. You know, I, grew, I yeah. was born in '87. I'm the same age as the next generation, so that's my Star Trek. And then the original series movies are my Star Trek. I mean, that's really what I grew up watching. You know, uh, two, three, four, five. You know, yeah. uh, even even six. Uh, Star Trek six is my first theatrical memory. Uh, wow. Like going to the movies when I was a kid. I don't remember the movie. I remember uh, my dad like. I, th- I think either like I fell asleep or something, and that's why he was like holding me, or we were just standing there. But I remember like like standing at the, near the end, like, like bottom of the theater, watching the main credits, like with their signatures and stuff. You know, that's like my first theatrical memory. But all that to say, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> that's a that really great theatrical memory. I remember at one stage, and I don't remember the circumstance of this, so I should probably not tell this because this is going to make it sound like I had a horrific childhood. But I remember one weekend where it was either my brother's birthday or my own birthday. My mom making a point to sneak off early to go see First Contact without us. Oh, uh, wow. Because she had enough going on that she wasn't going to be able to make it with us, so she went to see it by herself. And I thought uh, my parents were Trekkies. Goodness gracious. Um, <laughs> but no, I... I well, and, it, it's really really great and i have those memories of watching i remember watching first contact actually first contact is the only star trek movie or the first star trek movie i remember seeing in cinemas and i think that was sort of a, a good one to have 
Did you did you see Nemesis in the theater? I did, but that was not a good memory. Uh, I don't hold on. I don't treasure that <laughs> I, one. <laughs> I, I was going to say, if you didn't, then it's all your fault that we didn't get a Star Trek 11 until 2009. But anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, but no, no, Star, 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 uh, Star Trek at its best, really, is the movies, I think, in my opinion. You know, the, those original series movies, that's the uh, the gold standard for all things Star Trek. Uh, and so, so nothing to be ashamed there, my friend. Uh, and a lot of people retroactively discover the original series much like yourself, you know, because they see because that's like, you know, the original series, of course, they, they had a budget. They had they were just trying things out, you know, but uh, the original series movies, even though they were they had a lower budget than, you know, like the J.J. Abrams movies, for example, uh, still, you know, the, it was very polished, like the Star Trek motion picture is still probably the most epic of all the Star Trek movies, you know, uh, and, and, and like high brow sci-fi ideas and in special effects you know, and just polished storytelling scope. Um, so, you know, we, we, we love all things Captain Kirk and the Enterprise Strand Standard Orbit, so, so, so you're in good company. But one final question for you about TOS. So now that you've rediscovered it, do you prefer production order or broadcast order, or do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I, I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. I would be a person who would prefer probably production order, um, in large part because I, I feel like watching the series and, I mean, reading... I recently did a sort of a rewatch of, of Star Trek and, and the various Star Trek shows. And I've done reviews on, on the blog or whatever to give a shameless plug there. But like one of the joys of watching it was watching it and reading along with um, stuff like, say, Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages or, or other companion texts, uh, behind the scenes stuff like Ralph Sorensky's uh, website, which is a fantastic resource, and going through sort of episode by episode and sort of like charting. You're right when you said that they innovated and they pushed the envelope and they were doing things that nobody else was doing. And if you watch it in production order, you get to see them doing that, which is just incredible to me. Like, I, I know, you know, narratively or in terms of broadcast, you have that original context. But watching it in terms of production order is like you can see week on week the production team being like, OK, well, we, we did this last week. Maybe this week we can try doing this. And you sort of see them grow and stumble and fall. And like the first season of the original series, and I know I'm on here to talk about the third, but the first season of the original series just has this wonderful progressive arc where they start out sort of stumbling out of the gate because nobody had done anything like this before. And nobody involved really had any idea, I think, of what they were doing at the start of it. And then you get towards the end where you have these Gene L. Kuhn scripts, which are just like back to back, wall to wall, fantastic. You have like Devil in the Dark, Errand of Mercy, City on the Edge of Forever, like A Taste of Armageddon. You've just got Space Seed. You've just got this hammer from about 20 episodes in through to, I think it runs 29, doesn't it, the first season, if you count the case? Yeah, 29, 29 or 30, because there's like the Menagerie part one and two, and sometimes yeah. you count it as twice. But yeah, you got 30 episodes, give or take, in season one. <laughs> <laughs> and it just it like it's it's a season that like barring Operation Annihilate, um, you know, it just builds this wonderful crescendo. Like where the city <laughs> on the edge of forever is like, okay, we figured out what the hell we're doing. This is amazing. And you if get the only sense they that- delayed one. If only they just you know just dropped off Operation, Operation Annihilate, right? And let yeah. Sydney on the Edge of Forever be the cap of the season. It would have been something special, right? Yeah, you, you kind of imagine that after they wrapped, like, City on the Edge of Forever, there's a point where everyone goes, okay, we're done, we're done, it's great. And then somebody else goes, uh, you do know that there's one more episode due this year. And just going, crap. <laughs> Watch out for this flying fake vomit, guys. Um, I, I, but- I like Operation Annihilate, but it is no City on the Edge of Forever or Errand of Mercy or Space Seed or any number of those other great episodes. Not quite a classic, no, sir. No. Um, no, no, I got you there. And, you know, t- to that point, you know, the, the first season of the original series is is, is amazing. It's one of the best yeah. seasons of television. And then season two as well. Um, so, you know, to get into our discussion today, let's get to it. Season three gets a bad rep, you know. And, and yes, it's not as strong as the first two seasons of the show. That's an incredibly high bar to live up to. Uh, you know, I mean, if you just go down the list, the ratio of good to bad episodes is incredibly in the favor of good for the for the first two years. So with season three, with budget cuts and cancellation looming, it, you know, it's hard to blame them for losing steam at the end there. You know, I mean, Gene Roddenberry, his his presence had had dialed back. They had new producer Fred Freiberger. You know, there was there was frustration around um, just just knowing that they their time slot had been moved. So there was a lot of stuff you know behind the scenes going on influencing it. But even so. Uh, the third season is responsible for a lot of what is deemed iconic Star Trek, both in pop culture and in deeper Star Trek lore. Yeah, I, I would argue that. And I think that one of the things about the third season is that you got to keep in mind a lot of people who watch Star Trek, because, I mean, we talk about ourselves discovering it retroactively. It's not just us doing that. It's a lot of the writers who worked on the show have also talked about how they would have discovered it in syndicated reruns during sort of daytime television. Like there's a, I think Ronald D. Moore has talked about that's how he used to watch it. Manny Cotto, for example, has talked about how his memory of watching the original series is that he would watch it and he would actually time the episodes in syndication over and 
over again. So you go, okay, I just watched the Doomsday uh, Machine. I know that I'm going to have to wait another, you know, 16 weeks before I see that episode again. That sort of stuff where you would have the episodes airing sort of back to back in five blocks. So there's really, when you're watching in syndication, there was no real distinction in terms of like break in terms of time or continuity between sort of the second, the first, the second and the third season. They're all just sort of, they run together over 16 weeks over and over again. And what's interesting to me about the third season is when I went back and watched it, like it is a woefully uneven season of television with some of the worst episodes of Star Trek ever produced. So it obviously like The Way to Eden. We don't need to legislate this. You have The Way to Eden, like Spock's Brain, Turnabout Intruder, which is one of the worst finales in the history of television. Um, and you just have this sort of like this stuff of stuff, which people are understandably kind of very sensitive about. And they don't see it like living up to the legacy of like the first two seasons where we had, like as we talked about the first season, you have this wonderful crescendo with The City on the Edge of Forever. But even the second season, you have stuff like Journey to Babel, you've got like all this sort of other stuff, Trouble with Tribbles, you've got these wonderful episodes that sort of speak to what Star Trek is and what's sort of like been sort of baked down the the idolized version of Star Trek in terms of like fandom and in terms of what we want and what we expect from these characters. But when I went back and I watched the third season from beginning to end, well, I was surprised by a number of things. And the thing that most surprised me is the fact that a lot of the third season of Star Trek has sort of become ingrained and sort of like encompassed in the fan memory of the thing. Because like one of the things I, I, I'm very interested in sci-fi and I'm very interested in sci-fi fandoms. One of the things about sci-fi fandoms is that the memory of the thing is not always the thing itself in terms of how we remember, say, continuity or, or whatever mm-hmm. is not always exactly what happened. Like, And it's particularly with, say, the original series with Spock, where like fans of this very idealized version of Spock as a character who never lies. Um, and, you know, they have this idea of Vulcans. Like, on the, remember on when Enterprise appeared and everyone's all like, Vulcans, Vulcans are not horrible people. What is this show doing? Vulcans are nice people. And you go back and you actually, like, you watch Journey to Babel and Sarek is hella racist. Um, and also just a and jerk very to his son. Yeah, and, and horrible to his son. Or even like a mock time <laughs> where like, uh, you know, they're all like, oh, by the way, it's okay. Spock will fight to the death with the person he loves and then he won't want to mate. So I can go and I can go do my own thing. And you're like, yeah, Vulcans, maybe. And they, they, and they don't even tell Kirk yeah. it's to the death until he after he agrees to do it. It's like, <laughs> yeah. that would have been nice yeah. to know. <laughs> yeah, you have this sort of sense that like Vulcans, because fans love Spock, because Spock is, is lovable in general, Vulcans are, you know, they they weren't as idealized as our memory sort of perceives them to be. And I think there's a lot of that with the third season where fan consensus has sort of said, look, third season is terrible and awful and woeful. And a lot of it is. But you go back and you watch it and there's a lot of it that carries over. Like there's a lot of stuff that is, I think of like as quintessentially Star Trek. Um, that sort of you see develop over the course of the third season. And I mean, there are a number of these things, but the most obvious thing that jumps out to me, and you sort of, you mentioned it in, in your introduction there, is the first thing is the idea of, of Kirk as a lady killer, right? As Kirk as sort of this womanizing, like, I don't want to say Zap Brannigan-esque figure, but the idea that, <laughs> that Kirk is like a, a guy with a girl in every spaceport, where he's got this sort of charm offensive in the form of William Shatner. Now, there are obviously there are episodes in the first couple of seasons where, where Kirk would sort of turn that on. Dagger of the Mind comes to mind with the infamous, the only Christmas party. And you imagine that the reason why it's the only Christmas party in Star Trek history is because that's the one where Kirk hooks up with a yeoman or whatever. But um, you have she this... She was a doctor, I believe, oh, just oh, for, to oh, give apologies. her due credit. Apologies, apologies. But you Dr. do have... Helen Noel. Because ah. it's a Christmas, it's party. Christmas you get it? party. Yeah, Dagger of the Mind came towards the start of the season. Remember how I talked about the first season ramping up? But you do have this sort of sense of like Kirk in the first two seasons was kind of this intellectual, remote sort of figure. He was he wasn't exactly like Picard, but he's also not like the Kirk in popular memory or the Kirk from the movies where he's like an action hero. Like there was a lot of yeah. introspection in Kirk in those first two well, years. A, a couple points there, you know, uh, in the early scripts, you could easily switch him out for Jeffrey Hunter's Captain Pike, you know, yeah. uh, where you know, like the man trap, he's like upset that people are dying and he's like Mud's women. These women come on. He's not having any of it. You know, yeah. he's just, I mean, he, he has a little bit of charm, but at the most point he's like, he's sticking to business, you know? Yeah. Or even uh, balance of terror, like where you have this sort of melancholy oh, yeah. figure, like you have this sort of like very solemn individual. But, you know, in, in, in the first couple of years, uh, there would be a lot of past loves for Kirk that would come on, you know, yeah. uh, for uh, the deadly years or shore leave or, or court, court martial, martial you know? yeah kirk's yeah. ex-girlfriends or whatever but, but no one like he wouldn't like meet some random person and go oh, hello you know yeah. uh, that that would happen every now and then but sometimes he would a lot of the times he would use it 
yeah. to his advantage, like, like Conscious in, of the King or Cat's Paw, you know? Yeah, or even, like, do androids, sorry, do, what are little girls made of, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like, sort of weaponizes. Do androids dream of electric sheep? No, yeah, it's that, a different uh, robot question mark title, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you have that sort of, that same sort of idea of, like, Kirk. And even then, it's like Kirk is being... Even in applying his sexuality, Kirk is being sort of professional and cold and rational. Um, have you read the? Have you actually read um, Gene Roddenberry's novelization of the motion picture? Kirk very coldly and very rationally when the Elia probe beams back. Kirk very coldly and very rationally in Gene Roddenberry prose basically realizes that the only way to get the Enterprise out of the situation is to teach the robot to feel emotions, and to do that, you need to seduce her. And Kirk sort of, no, no, like, it's very cold and it's very rational. You can see, like, Kirk works through, like, the angles. He's like, okay, well, look, it's going to have to be me or it's going to have to be Decker, right? Decker has the advantage of, like, being the man that Elia loves. So he's got a little bit of an inroad there. But on the other hand, I'm James Tiberius Kirk. I know what I'm doing in this case. So we have to weigh up these options very carefully. And there's a good, like, That is hilarious. That is so Gene Roddenberry. It is. (laughs) (laughs) But, um... I think when you get to the third season, though, when you had, like, Friedberger come in and you had this sort of... Um, one of the things that Friedberger did when he, he assumed sort of command of the ship of state was he tried to make the show broader. He tried to find a way to expand beyond what he perceived to be, like, uh, genre fans, which were, like, young men. He tried to attract... And it was it was a horribly misguided decision, both in terms of what he did and how he tried to do it. Um, but he basically said, like, what if we can attract female viewers? And what? how do we attract female viewers to Star Trek? Which is ignoring the fact that, A, like, the cornerstones of Star Trek fandom are, are mostly women, actually. Like, people like Bio Trimble, for example, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Susan Sackett, um, who are grossly overlooked when we talk about Star Trek fandom. And B, it, it's sort of, it's very gross and sort of generalization in terms of, well, women like romance, right? We'll just stick in some lovey-dovey stuff. Well, yeah, exactly. That, that's And that's a huge criticism of third season. Like, who is falling in love this week? Yeah. That, <laughs> you know, who, exactly. What romance of the week? Not just for Kirk, but for anybody, for for Spock, for Scotty, even McCoy gets some action this season, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I think that, like, Kirk sort of, like, the idea of Kirk as a lady killer, I think, is sort of sewn to that. Because you have in, in very rapid succession, you have, for example, like, the Paradise Syndrome which is the one where Kirk becomes Kurok, goes, like, full Native American I'm and Kirok. marries and has a family. <laughs> yeah. Shouting at the wind. Um, and then you also have stuff like, for example, um, you have, like, later on in the season, you have Ilan of Troyes, where he falls in love with Ilan after he touches her tears. You have, like, even Whom Gods Destroy, which, like, when people think of Kirk as a lady killer, they think of him making out with, like, green alien space babes. It's the who, only time that happens. Only this time. Is yeah, this is the only time that happens. You have then later on the season, even in episodes that are not specifically about Kirk falling in love, like for example the Cloudminders, where you have like a wrestling match with a knife on a bed. Like <laughs> that was very bizarre, and he's like enjoying it too. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of into it a little bit. But and but the, the Cloudminders, though, that that is to me that is the worst example of uh, the what do you want to call them? Like a, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the terminology, but like the. Um, Okay, well, Spock, they just make him like a normal yes. guy. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, exactly. He's Spock, like, oh, well, Spock never, gets a love interest in that episode. I've never met a work of art before. And Kirk's <laughs> like, what? Is this, what are you doing, man? This is my territory. I'm supposed to do this. It's just, it's yeah. very interesting. And, and he's talking to some girl he just met about Pon Far, which he wouldn't even tell Kirk about a year ago. And it's, yeah. that is just, like, that is the, biz, the biggest betrayal of Spock's character. You know, I, uh, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying that he has to always you know inconsistency of character is character as yeah. they say right so that's fine and all but it just really sticks out like this is the same spock we just saw wouldn't even tell kirk that you know he had to go home to get married a year ago but anyway but, like again this is the season where kirk like you know thinks he's a native american and marries a, a woman and then she dies and he goes off and never talks about it again. even stuff like uh, requiem for methuselah where kirk gets falls in love with an android but falls in love with her so profoundly that spock has to wipe his memory at the end of it in order uh, to you, you you might appreciate this i uh i, I you know i i'm an editor by trade so i did a little fan edit at the end of city Ed- edge of forever a few years ago okay. and um what i did was i was i edited the end of requiem for methuselah i edited the scene a little bit yeah. you know to cut out specific references to the end of city on Edge of forever right yeah. and uh you know i think it works really well i think it's a better ending for that episode <laughs> because i remember in, in ellison's original original script you know there's a scene where spock go visits kirk in his quarters you know and tells him you know, no one gave up the universe for love and, and all that stuff he doesn't erase his memory or anything <laughs> but but he th- but you think to yourself like Okay, 
if there was one situation where that was called for, that would be it, you know? So I think it worked pretty well. And then, of course, YouTube took it down and no one's ever seen it. And I would like oh. to share it with people, but I can't. But anyway, but, <laughs> I think I thought it worked pretty well. Yeah. But but I'll have to say, you know, to your point, uh, season three, sowing the seeds for things, right? Yeah. And we can we can, we can can talk about Kirk as a Lothario forever here, but <laughs> we, we, we can touch on that in a second. But uh, this that reminds me, though, at the end of uh, Rookie for Methuselah, Spock minds all those Kirk and tells him, forget, you yeah. know? Uh, and I, I don't know if this was on the radar when they were looking for remember in Star Trek Two, but there's a clear like remember forget like you can yeah. see like where they yeah. might have taken this 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 space seed if you will <laughs> and used it in Star Trek Two. <laughs> yeah, like, there there is even a lot of that little stuff. Like I think even when you remember when you think of, and and this is going to be awful because this is this is one of the things where you have the difference between the popular memory of Star Trek and the fan memory of Star Trek, where you have mm-hmm. like. When people think of Star Trek, they think of like Star Trek as broad social allegory and commentary and stuff like that. And nine times out of ten, I guarantee you, people are thinking of the episode Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, which any Star Trek fan who's watched it knows is a terrible piece of television. But it I just... don't like Let That... That's one of my favorite episodes oh, from season three. Okay. <laughs> because, 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 no, because it, it just, to me, yes, it's absurd, but that's the whole point. The racism yeah. is absurd. He's like, well, you're black on one side and white on the other. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, well, he's black, you're white. What's the difference? You know, I think I think making it to me, although it's almost naive in its its simplicity, uh, it informs where we should be as a society in the 23rd century, where it's just it's so incomprehensible that people would like feel this way about a different skin color. Yeah. You know, and I think you know, I, I and I get it's a little cheesy. They do for some reason because Frank Gorshin is a guest star. They do all like the Batman pop zooms with <laughs> yeah. the red alerts. I, I'd like, where did that come from? And then it, you know, there's a little too much running at the end. Yes, and no budget as well. <laughs> you can tell like this was one of the episodes where they had they spent all the budget on. Gorshin, so like, like okay, run guys, around keep, a bit. keep keep running we got we got five more minutes to fill but i i do i do really like that episode so but but yes that that is the quintessential star trek ham-fisted like look issue storytelling sort it's of it's modern day issues in the future yeah. and i mean even then like you you have like star trek did a number of like space hippie episodes like for example i would argue this side of paradise in the first season is a space is a space hippie mm-hmm. episode but like when people say space hippies they always think of the way to eden like I, th- I think that there's an argument you made that like the, even just in terms of visual or in terms of like storytelling, when people think of those aspects of Star Trek, like they think of those episodes in the third season because they are cartoonish. Like the third season is, I think, much more cartoonish than the first two were. Like, it, and you can see that even when Shatner's performance, like for example, in um, the one with the, "And the Children Shall Lead," has one of those oh, great. That, now, <laughs> that's the worst episode of Star Trek. It is, but it has one of those, like, when people think of William Shatner overacting, like, Shatner's, Shatner is relatively, I would argue, contained in the first two seasons, barring episodes like, say, uh, The Enemy Within or whatever, you know? Like, there are points when he, he starts cramming scenery down his throat, but they're relatively sort of contained in those first two seasons. In the third season, and again, I don't know whether reading accounts behind the scenes, whether this is just because he was bored or because he was trying to compete with uh, sort of Nimoy, Nimoy for screen time. But he just goes full fledged. Full repeatedly. Yeah, he goes full shot. No, I, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's the scene in the turbo lift. Where I'm yes, like, that's this, exactly. This is the scene. Because I recently, I, me and Brandon Shamatella uh, did a commentary on this uh, a couple months ago. Uh, we, we have fun doing commentaries on some of the, the lesser episodes of Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, and, and that scene, I was like, this is what people think of when they talk about Shatner's neck. That's exactly what you're talking about. Like, I don't know why. Because who, it's still one of the worst episodes. Why does everyone remember that? I don't know why. But it, but it's just the way he the way he moves the way he talks like everything like that is the Captain Kirk parody when someone does a Captain Kirk parody that is what they're doing that scene in the turbo lift and I mean even even outside of that you have episodes like the turnabout intruder which is a terrible piece of television and actually I love Shatner's performance in it because Shatner's performance in it is like the one thing that is enjoyable to watch it's entertaining isn't it like you can see you can see what he's doing yeah you know he's he's going like he's doing this full sort of parody of masculinity like it's it's you know this horrible (laughs) woman who hates men who's pretending to be a man and it's got this sort of it's got layers like an onion that's gone off a great deal but it's still got layers um and you sort of like I think that the third season has that quality in terms of like Shatner's performance like when people who are not who are Star Trek fans or are not Star Trek fans when they think of William Shatner acting and they're like oh no what is going on that that's what they're thinking of they're thinking of those scenes in those episodes and it's kind of interesting to wonder why they seem to I think maybe the reason why they latched on more than say the the first or second season when Shatner is like Shatner is a fantastic actor when he's on like he's really really great he's like City on the Edge of Forever it's just a powerful emotional roller coaster and large part of that's down to Shatner but the reason why I think people remember Shatner as third season Shatner is because like a lot of the third season is sort of cartoonish it's like exaggerated 
So, you know, like, when you remember something, you remember the broad strokes, the big details, the neon signs. Like, when you remember Shatner's acting, you don't remember, like, the quiet detail of him standing there with Edith Keeler talking about how the most important three words in the English language are, let me help. You think, oh no, what is wrong? Um, him freaking out in the turbo lift or you think of him on the command chair with his eyes wide open sort of his back completely straight staring out at the audience as if he's having some sort of acid trip uh, because well, even are... even uh, even in the better episodes like Enterprise Incident which is one of my favorite episodes yes. of the whole series uh, he, he inten- it's part of the it's part of the plot though like he's acting like he's lost his mind he's like I'll kill you I'll kill you traitor you know he's just like what what uh, it, but that's that's intentional that's part of the yeah. story and then also like in Whom Gods Destroy right where he's like throwing a fist that's not Kirk. That's Garth. That's as Kirk, but as it's Kirk. Shatner as Garth as Kirk, and you can tell he's it's like just... no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, actually, it's it's funny. Like you mentioned those episodes. Like Garth of Izar is this character who appeared in the ba- like he's not a major. He shouldn't be a major character in the Star Trek canon in shouldn't any shape or form. Character. But he is. Like people are obsessed with Garth. Like remember when Star Trek Discovery came on? Everyone's all like, oh, by the way, is Jason Isaacs playing Garth? Or you have like uh, what's it, uh, Axanar and stuff like that. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about it. But well, you have that I, yeah, sort of... I, I recall like back, back when they were looking for, um, um, I guess I, I don't know uh, for for I call them guest stars, but uh, yeah, you know, for, in the movies, in the JJ movies, yeah. they're like, oh, could Garth yeah. be the villain in Into Darkness? Like what, Garth of Izar? Come on, yeah. guys! Like <laughs> he appeared in one episode. It wasn't a good episode, uh, but for some reason, see, everyone... I, I, see, I like that one too. Uh, let's let's you know before we get any deeper down the rabbit hole here, what episodes of season three do you? actually like darren i'm just very curious <laughs> okay because well, I, like I most, be... most of the ones the ones the ones that i've like you mentioned it's one of the worst pieces I... of television in the history like i'm like i like that one <laughs> I, I want to be clear on this. When I say they're bad episodes, like, I, I love, I love Whom Gods Destroy. I just recognize it's not good television. Like, let that be your last battlefield, which I, which I think is terrible television, also has sort of an enjoyable aspect to it. Okay, well, that's that's sort of running through the list of, of episodes that I, I really, mm-hmm. truly like about it. Because I think, I think there's a solid five great episodes in season three. I'd probably go even higher than that, actually, which is kind of strange, um, given how cynical I've been of the episodes we're talking about. So I think we'll agree on the Enterprise incident, just off mm-hmm. the bat. Uh, that's one of the best episodes the, the show Should have been the produced. season premiere. It's, <laughs> when you look at what was actually the season premiere, I think anything... Well, it's insane, because you know we were talking about uh, production order and air date order, right? Yeah. So the, the first episode aired infamously is Spock's Brain. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the first episode produced is Spectre the Gun, right? Yeah. So even that would have been a better premiere yes. then Spock's brain like what were you thinking <laughs> well I mean uh, Spectre of the Gun is actually would be one of the ones that I really really like about it I really really like mm-hmm. the third season I like that sort of broad sort of like uh, I love the the town as sort of like this this half constructed oh, because we haven't got the budget but also because it's eerie sort of western frontier I like the literalizing the space western aspect of it I also like is there in truth no beauty um, just mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a fantastic concept um, I also like say Day of the Dove Tholian Web the Empath, I think, is is massively underrated. Um, the Empath is, I believe, that's DeForest Kelly's favorite episode. Or he was quoted at some point saying it was. So cool. So good company there. Good company. Uh, and then hold on, there's also I like that. I actually like that which survives, which is like one of those outliers, which I can't I can't explain, and everybody's sort of forgotten about. Uh, which that I, was the last episode of the original series I ever saw. Oh. Like I'd seen them all up to that point. I, I, I uh, as I've mentioned a few times here, I have a, I have a laserdisc collection, and I got the original series on laserdisc because it was so cool. You know, you were talking about those three or four tapes, uh, episodes per tape back in the day. Well, when I was a kid, you know, I used to see these laserdiscs, you know, and they had two episodes per laserdisc, and they were so cool. Anyway, I got I got a good price on them on eBay a few years ago, and I have the whole series on on laserdisc. And you know, I was going through the series, and I'm like, oh, I haven't seen this one. It's got it's got Catwoman from Batman the movie in it. What's this all about? Uh, so it's it, it just it was interesting to like you know uh, if you haven't seen. It's new to you. <laughs> yeah, and it has this sort of weird aspect. Like, I also like Wink of an Eye as well, actually, because it has this sort of weird... Like, it's like they stopped doing science fiction at certain points of the third season. They're just like, let's do fairy stuff. Let's do magic stuff. <laughs> like, because it's basically, it's a siren story on many levels. And, like, Wink of an Eye is basically, like, a fair folk story as well. Mm-hmm. And and I like that one as well. And then All Our Yesterdays would be the last one that I would yes. add to that list. So I, that, I agree. All Yesterdays is a good, is a really good episode. Uh, again, again about, had, they, had they finished the season one episode yeah, you, you, <laughs> earlier. You talk about just switching the episodes, the orders around on these things. Yeah, if they started one episode later or ended one episode earlier, maybe things would have been different. 
I, I'm also partial to Savage Curtain as well. I found that a, a fun episode with uh, Abraham Lincoln and Sir. It, okay, talk about Star Trek mythology, right? Yeah. Uh, that introduces Serac. Yeah. It introduces Kalis. You know, yeah. I mean, that's, these are, these are major mythological figures, and I love like I love how you describe Garth. Like this guy is way more important than he should be. <laughs> so, so are these guys, right? Yeah. yeah, they are. And I mean, even like um, Kalis the Unforgettable, who's presented as this horrible sort of like, well, Klingons are pure evil, um, which is kind of interesting because like. Day of the Dove is one of the first times that you get I think in Errand of Mercy you get a sense that Klingons are not necessarily pure evil but I think in Day of the Dove is the first time that the the Star Trek shows really look at say Klingons being having their own code and like you have this idea of honourable Klingons which becomes a bigger deal in say Star Trek 3 The Search for Spock or when Ronald D. Moore takes over um, writing them in the next generation but you have the seeds of that there in terms of what yeah, people K- think Kang is definitely the most honourable of the three the, the three main Klingons in yeah. TOS being Kor, Koloth and Kang uh, Kor is probably the most interesting of the three uh, yeah. and he he ended up having the most screen time because he comes back the most in Deep Space Nine but, yeah. uh, but Kang is a solid number two yeah, and Kang sort of has this, yeah, Kang has this sort of quality about him where of the characters who are reinvented for Deep Space Nine, like, Kang is the character who would most fit in with, like, next generation yeah. Deep Space Nine. Very true, <laughs> very true, because, I mean, Koloth, that guy's completely reinvented. <laughs> like, I, I love that I love that exchange, though, in, in a Blood Oath when, uh, when Odo was, like, looking at his pad, he looks up and <laughs> Koloth is in there, he's like, how did you get in here? It's like, I am Koloth. It's like, that doesn't answer my question. Yes, it does. It's like, oh, what a badass, right? Yeah, that is Kang, not the co-author cool of T.O. It's fantastic. He really is. And he was also great as Trelane as well. And, like, I actually, like, I really do like, I like the Trouble with Trouble sort of version of Klingons, where they're basically, like, Romulans. They're what would become Romulans in later shows, where they're untrustworthy well, and, well, and coy. That That is, you know, that's something worth, worth talking about here as, as we kind of peel back the onion, right? Um, there, There is, and I, I have to agree, you know, there's, there's a common... Um, this conversation point in Star Trek fandom that, you know, whatever everything Ronald D. Moore did with the Klingons was great. You know, love I love the Klingon saga as they call it. But clearly, you know, for such a fan of TOS, like someone along the way switched the Romulans and the Klingons. Yeah. Did they not from like this honorable race to like the sneaky the the, the bad yeah. guy, you know, like and I get like, oh, it's like the Cold War and we're friends with the Russians and da 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 da. That's yeah. what they were going for with the Klingons, but but in doing that they they switched like the core characteristics uh, I, yeah of those races right i mean isn't the the argument is i think that that happened around star trek 3 where during production they originally wanted to use the romulans um and that's why the bird of prey can cloak for example which is the first klingon ship that can cloak and it's called a bird of prey i believe as well mm-hmm. uh which is yeah, also we, we talk about i love star trek oh, we talk about star trek 3 a lot on the, that is my favorite of the star trek movies i uh, really i love star trek 3 i think it's horribly maligned and underrated i think it's yeah, the first time you. i think it's the first time you get an ensemble the first time the original series sort of feels like more than just those three guys and the people they work with um <laughs> see see now we're getting some common ground here guys see that <laughs> we might disagree on the season three we're, we're agreeing on the movies no i i absolutely agree um um, but yeah, no, no. You look at the enterprises in it, right? Yeah. Uh, they're using Romulans, no, using Klingon design, right? I love talking about. <laughs> I love talking about that uh, because they couldn't find the bird of prey model, yeah. right? So we have that mythology where there's Klingon Romulan alliance, and then and then that 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 carries on to Star Trek Three, as you said, because they wanted to change from Romulans to Klingons because people thought. Well, the, the understanding was okay. The general public might be confused because Klingons and Vulcans look the same. Like or, yeah. Spock's people are bad guys. Like that. So like at least use the Klingons, you know. Uh, and then you, and then that goes on to TNG. You get to like uh, obviously Ronald D. Moore brings all this back. You have Duras working with the Romulans. You have Redemption. You know, there's always these Romulan Klingon alliances throughout Star Trek, and that, that all starts back here in season three of two S because of a production thing. <laughs> and I go I go even further, and I'd say it's not just the Klingons and the Romulans that sort of begin with that. Like DC Fontana, who who wrote the episode and was obviously she was overwritten. She's not happy with how that played out but Fontana is like one of the key world builders in terms of Star Trek and so I would argue like Journey to Babel which sort of laid the foundation of the Federation as this sort of multicultural entity and like in terms of like the relations between Andorians, Telarites, Vulcans which sort of laid the path going forward but the thing about the Enterprise incident is it's the first time that I think and I'm, I'm willing to be corrected if I'm wrong here but when I was watching it it was the first time that it really seemed like the space in Star Trek belong to somebody other than the Federation and the people they were dealing with that week in terms of like, so you obviously you have the Cold War with the Klingons where they're interfering with like various planets and like Friday's Child or the Trouble with Tribbles. But this was the first time that the show seemed to say, well, look, okay, not only do the Federation exist and say the Romulans exist and the Klingons exist, but it's also like the Klingons and the Romulans exist when the Federation isn't looking at them. 
it's like the like it's not just like they stand still and pretend to do nothing for like the five episodes a year where neither of them appear <laughs> it's like oh by the way they have their own agency and they have their own engagement and that sort of gives you stuff like in the next generation as you mentioned with the Romulans and Klingons but even on say Deep Space Nine which sort of embraced that a bit further where you had like the relationships between the Cardassians had a different relationship with the Bajorans as compared to the Klingons or you had like one of my favorite things about Deep Space Nine is, like, say, the third season two-parter where the die is cast an improbable cause, where, like, this huge thing happens in terms of, like, galactic importance, in terms of, like, shaping the future of the shared Star Trek universe, which is where the Romulans and the Cardassians team up to attack the Dominion. And basically, this is a story that in no way involves the Federation. The Federation are just witnesses to this. They have no agency. They've not committed to doing this in any way, shape, or form. They've not allied with any of the parties. There's no sort of involvement in this. But it's like, these two governments got together, interacted with this third government, and it had this sort of ripple effect that sort of, like, created sort of cosmic waves that would affect everybody else, like the Klingons and the Federation stuff. And I feel like you can trace that back to, like, that innocuous line of dialogue in the Enterprise incident, where it's like, oh, by the way, the Klingons and the Romulans, they kind of know each other, and they're kind of doing their own stuff when we're not interacting with them. Um, that's, an excellent, that's an excellent point. That kind of cements them as, as the two superpowers of TOS. I mean, the Klingons obviously appeared the most. Yeah. Uh, the Romulans only appeared three times. Uh, but when, when you put them together like that, you're like, oh, man, these guys are... Because, like, you know, you didn't have the Gorn and the Tholians teaming up or yeah. something, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, by the way, yeah, the um, the Doomsday Machine and the giant space amoeba have started emailing each other. We think they have a good, we think they got a solid future there. Um, but very it does get very good. It sort of builds this idea of like a world that exists outside of the details of a particular episode, which I think is kind of important. And I think that like that becomes like a cornerstone of Star Trek that was I think solidified in terms of like say the role playing game. Like nobody really talks about what happened after Star Trek went off the air that wasn't on screen, but you have stuff like say the role playing game or the novels, which sort of build on these ideas and sort of like solidify this sense of like the Star Trek universe as something that is not just like the place where Kirk has adventures week after week, but it's like J.R.R. Tolkien's sort of Middle Earth, where you have this sort of like, you have this history and this context and this alliance and this sort of like, these entities and these sort of engage. And I mean, one of the things I think that also shines through in the third season that wasn't there in the first two, I mean, it was kind of there in the first two, but it wasn't solidified as much, is the sense of like the 23rd century as a utopian society. Like Gene, Gene Roddenberry's idea of like Star Trek as a future that is better and more optimistic and more hopeful explicitly. Like, I mean, it was there implicitly when you had, like, you had Nichelle Nichols on the bridge and you had sort of George Takei on the bridge and you had Chekhov, who was a Russian serving with them as well, and this idea that everybody had put their differences behind them. But I think that in the third season, you start having these discussions about, like, infinite diversity and infinite combinations in, like, is there in truth no beauty, for example. Uh-huh. Or stuff like the discussion of Memory Alpha as this huge project yes, that, that Federation... That's exactly what I, was, what I was thinking of when you said that. Like the uh, total accumulation of all knowledge in the recorded galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's... that's but, but people just come there and, you, and you know, you see... Lights of Zatar is a terrible episode. Yeah. Um, I, I, to, quote, to, to quote you, it's one of the worst pieces of television. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but, but you go down there and you see, oh, there was an Andorian, there's a Tellarite. You know, this was, yeah. the, this was a place of, of all the races coming together. Hey, a, a proto... Space Station Yorktown, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it has that sort of uh, atmosphere as well. Like, And it, it's not even just in that one, because if it was just that one, you'd sort of write it off. But it plays through other episodes as well, like The Savage Curtain, where, for example, it, it's very clear, like, Kirk and Spock are the embodiment of good. It's like, they're not they're not complicated characters. They're not sort of three-dimensional. So, like, Kirk no longer has a dark side like he did in The Enemy Within. No, no, Kirk is like, Kirk and Spock are the representation of idealized sort of good in the universe, to the point where you can have them punch space Hitler and Space Witch in the face and obviously Kang um, but yeah it's it's there's this weird sense that sort of creeps through the, the third season of the show where you get the sense that Roddenberry is beginning to understand maybe like what he believes and, and it's worth noting like the, the Savage Curtain is written by, by Roddenberry as well like towards the end of the season and he insisted on the the addition of like the eye deck to uh, the third season as well um, arguably to help sell stuff for like Lincoln Industries for his own sort oh, of th- there's uh, no arguably about it <laughs> I'm trying to be polite here. <laughs> no, no, they. I mean, yeah, Shatner and Nimoy like had a long yeah. time. Like they had like to, like to pause filming that day to be like, hey, uh, I'm not really comfortable doing yeah. this. I mean, that was and that's Leonard Nimoy's whole falling out with Gene Roddenberry over 
over so many years was because just the uh, the ironically <laughs> the commercialization yeah. of, of yeah. Spock's image and Leonard Nimoy's image, you know, and and this utopian society where there is no money. Uh, yeah, which is beautifully we're... ironic. Like infinite diversity, infinite combinations is the most wonderful sort of Star Trek utopian idealistic. Like people are going to be better in the future sentiment. And it's also, by the way, buy this ornament. You can order it in our catalogue. Um, please send money. Most, it is the most, like, corporate chill move Star yeah. Trek has ever done. Yeah. It's hilarious and it's also, to me. That, at the same yeah, time, the, the, one of the, the most The juxtaposition of, yeah. of uh, rationalising both of them is just hilarious to me. Yeah, it is. And it, it's, uh, I think, like, that's the third season in a nutshell, where you have this sort of, like, <laughs> you have all this great iconic sort of stuff that people think about when they remember Star Trek. And it's also, a lot of it is terrible. Uh, but it's also so essentially Star Trek and it's that sort of thing where I, I feel like when I was mean I feel I'm sorry that I was mean about you know let that be your last battlefield because that is another example of that where it's like as a piece of television I'm not a huge fan of it but it is iconic Star Trek and it is quintessential Star Trek and I think there's a lot of that across the third season as a whole you know well, yeah, and, and to get it back uh, to, to kind of where we, we started jumping off the uh, the public perception of Kirk as a ladies' man, you know that is something that the J.J. Abrams films have completely run with uh, yeah, well, themselves to. It's like, oh yeah, it's it's like, and, and I know it's not the case because you know Robert Orsi is like uh, a big Star Trek fan, you know, yeah. and uh, I mean Kurtzman and Abrams not so much. You know, Abrams is so he's like, well, I like Star Wars better. Well, yeah, yeah we can, t- <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> so good for you, JJ. Uh, everything worked out for you in the end, and it worked out for Star Trek too because I think uh, of the three beyond. Uh, it's probably the most true to Star Trek, and and, and Justin Lin uh, w- was a Star Trek fan growing up, and, and it shows, and, and and that's its own conversation. But all that to say, I, they really like doubled down on the whole. Yeah, Kirk's a ladies' man. I'm like, was that really necessary? It's it's almost, and, and like I said, I, I I know this isn't the case, but it's like some people that had they only had the pop culture yeah. understanding of Star Trek were were given the like the script to write. Well, that, that, <laughs> of, that's the first it. Like, two I mean, movies, right? I've I've talked about this before. Like the, the Abrams movies. I like the Abrams movies a great deal. I think Star Trek has never worked as well on film as it has on television, so I don't mind the Abrams movies being sort of cartoon versions of Star Trek, where it is... Yeah, you, t- you talk about season three being a cartoon. This is like the next yeah. level. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it's, it's like the popular memory of Star Trek, it's, and it's like collectively people have remembered it without actually watching it, without actually going back. It's like if you ask somebody who had only heard Star Trek described like by people who had maybe watched it in reruns, like you would end up with something like the Abrams movies, and I mean, <laughs> exactly, that sounds horrible. That sounds exactly. like I'm being really mean. I'm not being really <laughs> No, I like it's so true though. I, no, and I love them too, but it's so spot on. So yeah. spot on. And I like that it's, it's a version of Star Trek that I could show my girlfriend, for example, or I could, you know, my fa- my entire family who are not Star Trek fans could watch because it's like it has that sort of familiar sheen of like feeling like people who have never watched Star Trek remember Star Trek being to the point where like it has Kirk in bed with a green alien space babe despite the fact that only happened once in the entire original series in an episode in the third season which like it's but that's become like what we associate with Kirk and with you know and and the same with Spock as well where Spock is this simmering sort of rage of like it's it's not that like Spock is repressed, but he's so far repressed that he seems like he's constantly away from snapping the neck of every member of the senior staff. Like, you have this sort of, like, exaggeration of of characteristics that were sort of nuanced and kind of, like, you know, sort of sketched and sort of developed very carefully in terms of the show and in terms of the films before. But because people remember, like, the exaggerated bit, the cartoonish bits. I mean, even the production design of the third season, where the budget went down on the third season... So, like, when a lot of people think of Star Trek sets, they think about, like, the modernist design of, say, the Empath, which I absolutely love, where it's just a black space with, like, these, like, brightly coloured panels or things hanging from the ceiling. Or even, say, the Cloud City in Stratos, where it looks like everything is made of cardboard, and maybe there's a bit of modern art in a corner somewhere or something like that. Exactly. It's it's, it's the pop culture uh, collective memory uh, uh, willed into being by, <laughs> by the by the J.J. movies. Manifested. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, of, of, of Kirk, you know, I, I think there is a string of episodes here in season three that really cements uh, the fact that oh uh, you know girl in the report lady of the week you know and um and and he has a couple of uh, failed attempts you know like uh uh isn't there truth no beauty you can't tell like it's kirk or spock i mean w- which one who's taking the lead on this one <laughs> you know uh but uh but but overall you know you got the paradise syndrome uh you have uh whom gods destroy with the, like the, the the scene uh where, yeah. where marta tries to kill him uh but then then you got mark gideon 
you got uh, Requiem oh, yeah. for Methuselah, yeah. Mark, and Mark you got Wink of an like Eye. A... Like, those three right there are yeah. the big three. It's also worth noting, like, Mark to Gideon. I can't believe I didn't talk about this. When we talk about Kirk as a lady killer, Mark to Gideon is a, an episode where an entire society has built its future on Kirk's virility. Like, Kirk is so manly that, like, his his sort of machismo or sexual energy is going to single-handedly fix a society. Like, this is this is the third season. Like, Kirk is so, so much a ladies' man that you just beam him down to a planet and their problems are solved. And, and I'm not going to lie. Not only do I get those episodes confused, I get his love interests, love interests confused in Week of an Eye and Mark of Gideon. Because yeah. it's like, okay, it's, it's the blonde girl with the ponytail... Uh, you know, and, and I think, yeah, and he gets pretty, I'm not sure, honestly, I don't remember which one, is, I think it's Wink and I, but that's the one where, like, you cut yes. back and he's, like, putting his boot back on, it's yes. like, oh, I know what happened there, right? Yeah, I think, and I think that's one of, that was a fairly quite risque for the time in terms of, like, primetime television. I, Zach, I will say, though, there is a very easy way to distinguish Wink of an Eye um, from Mark of Gideon. Wink of an Eye is good. Okay, get noted. <laughs> but, have to, I honestly, I haven't revisited that one in a while. Uh, I'll have to, I'll have to give it another watch sometime. Not to be confused with Blink of an Eye from Voyager, yes. which I believe Brandon Braga wanted to title Blink of an Eye until someone told him, "Oh, there's already a Star Trek episode named that." And Much like they so- wanted to name uh, Tuskanski, I can't even pronounce it, but they want the one with the rock. They yeah. wanted to name that Arena, but again, they're like, "Hey, Brandon, there's already a Star Trek episode named that. Where is Manny Cota when you need him?" <laughs> in, in Braga's defense, Roddenberry specifically told him not to go back and watch the original series. In his defense. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, fair you enough. Do, he's he's doing he's doing good things nowadays on the Orville. So, yeah, you do feel like yeah, you do feel like it. It wouldn't be too hard for Braga just to have a search field, like a, a spreadsheet of names that have already been used, and just do a Control <laughs> F. Um, no, no, we use that one. Um, but yeah, so, no, so that's pretty cool. Like, I mean, yeah, um, and, and you know, and just tying it all in with like the romance, I think that is that's a key thing. Where you know, I, I don't know when it beca- it's a trope in any TV show, especially an episodic TV show, where it's like, oh, the romance of the week, you know. But on a, on a show like the X Files, you can't do it as much because you can't have the same two characters, Mulder and Scully, yeah. like finding someone every week. Like maybe like what was it like twice a season, right? With when you have a show like that, um, even, but yeah. with Star Trek, like they they, they were so <laughs> they were so desperate to, to make that happen. You know, we had our our list of Kirks, and then you know. Box, like I said, we had uh, we had In There's in Truth No Beauty, we had Enterprise Incident, the big one. Yeah. We had All Our Yesterdays, which is a very underrated episode. I think that's that's almost I wouldn't quite call it Spock sitting on the edge of forever, but it, it it's serves close. the same purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, and then you have uh, uh, the Cloud Miners where he's like putting his Mac on, <laughs> putting the moves on. He's like, oh, this is just so incongruous. The Spock's character, like, but um, but but then you have to go past that, right? So they're like, okay, who else we got? McCoy. Yes. Let's give him a love interest, right? And that's great to see because other than like the man trap. He hasn't really had anything going on on that on that front. This is what I'd argue with the third season as well. Like I, I mentioned earlier, that I think the third Star Trek movie is the point at which Star Trek sort of becomes an ensemble. Because I think when Spock dies, or you know, when Leonard Nimoy is written out, you have to then use all the other characters to, to tell a story. So you get all these wonderful little moments in Star Trek Three where you have like "Don't Call Me Tiny" or you know "Mr. Adventure" with with Uhura and stuff like that. And you have this idea that like the characters all have functions and all have lives outside of like being the guy who being the woman who opens hailing frequencies or being the guy who sets course. In the third season, actually, and it's very clumsy, and you're right, it's very cynical, and it is sort of tied to this, well, uh, who's going to fall in love this week? Let's spin the wheel. But you get this, the third season kind of has a more focus, I think, on the broader characters than the first two, like, in terms of, like, Scotty, Scotty's romance of the lights of Zatarn, right, when you say it's not a good episode of television at all, but um, his romance in there is the most character development that he receives in the entire season, in the entire show, with the possible exception of, what is it, Wolf in the Fold, where it's like, maybe Scotty's a misogynist. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or who moans for uh, Adonis, you know. Oh yeah, where Scott, where maybe Scott, he's a misogynist. Um, <laughs> but um, or even even stuff like, say, for example, the emphasis on Chekhov, Inspector of a Gun, for example, um, that sort of stuff, or even like the attempt to give McCoy a love interest in, as you mentioned there, the wonderful title, terrible episode for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. Like it sort of gives a sense that maybe these characters have a bit more breadth to them than they would have had in earlier seasons. So I think even in like the man trap, for example, it's, it's an ex-girlfriend as opposed to somebody well, who falls in love. with it her. is interesting. We, we talk about the beginning and end of, of Star Trek here, and I, I feel like I feel like in those early, if you do watch the early episodes, you see it is more of an ensemble show at the very beginning because they're they're trying to figure out okay which character is going to fit. Like the man trap, right? You have lots of Janice Rand and Sulu and Uhura oh, yeah, gets her yeah. own scene. Like you would never see that in like in the season two and like the heyday of Gene yeah. Kuhn, where it's like, no, it's Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. That's it. That's and what Scott we're doing. Can yeah. Sometimes take command of the ship. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and Chekhov can have a couple Russian jokes, and that's it, you know. Yeah. Um, but then as they as ever came kind of like settled into their roles, it's like, okay, well, Shatner's, okay, he's the A-plus star here. Oh, people love Spock more. Spock, okay, oh, people love uh, McCoy. Let's elevate him to Give main him character regular, status. Yeah. And then that kind of cemented that, you know, the trifecta. And then everybody else really fell to the wayside quickly after, you know, during season one. But then you do start to see these other characters because you just run out of stories to tell. That's why <laughs> yeah. that's why Scotty and McCoy get love interests. Um, they were going to give Wolf in the Fold to Sulu, but then uh, discussions the were having, well, or something was that around the time <laughs> that's a, that's a running joke around here to the green berets but uh, that's where <laughs> ken is today by the way filming the green berets um uh but no actually that they decided that that james Doohan was a stronger actor mm. than george decay that's why they gave him the, the love interest uh and then also this side of paradise was supposed to be a sulu love story but they're like well dc fontana's like well let's make it about spock that's more interesting so so sulu always slighted you know he doesn't get the love interest doesn't get to be captain of the excelsior until star trek six even though it was playing all the way back in star trek two so um but and then he does you know, get a shirtless scene <laughs> that's true but we you know we've been discussing here because we recently did uh me and brandon shay Matella did a, a commentary on cat's paw like i said we like to talk about the worst episodes um and we realized like every time sulu goes down on a, on a away mission it goes terribly wrong like return <laughs> of the archons he gets he gets brainwashed uh cat's squire paw, gothos he gets, as well he gets, brainwashed, one, squire, yeah. he gets frozen and squire <laughs> to gothos uh it's just like come on man <laughs> the cat can't catch a break but uh yeah. all, all that all that to say you know if i think and it, are you by the way are you familiar with star trek continues the fan show Fantasies. I haven't watched it. I've heard of it. It is amazing, by the way, and they're actually just wrapping up. Uh, they, they they had eleven episodes total, right. and then uh, this is with the CBS new rules and stuff. To to yes, mention because that, CBS that, changed yes. their their fan uh, rules due to, yeah. that, due to that some TV reasons. show that we um, mentioned um, involving <laughs> a certain Garth. Um, that, maybe there, there are lots of reasons, uh, <laughs> but uh, all that to say, Star Trek Tinge is amazing. It is it is like if you think of a fan production, like this is this is not that. This is like so well done the attention to detail is amazing the acting is great uh i highly recommend it as someone who's very critical of fan films you know being in the production world myself i sniff out bad production <laughs> value like nobody's business and uh i love it and seeing how big a structure can you are darren you're gonna love okay. it too but all that to say uh they do introduce some new characters and people are like oh they would never do that bah. i'm like actually they probably would because as you can already see in season three they're starting to expand their scope of like who's on the enterprise yeah. who's doing what today uh you would have to do that as to make it sustainable if you're going to go yeah. to the full five-year mission so that just reminded me of that because they have brought on some other characters and some people have been kind of hot and cold at like that's not the star trek that i know from the 79 episodes bah. it's like hey you gotta evolve and change and grow but, I mean, uh, but I'll, I'll like to say, check it out you'd like yeah. it yeah, yeah, it was Mr. Eric's and Imres. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not as if there isn't precedent for this. Like, what about the, the second season where it's like, who the hell is this, like, Russian fan of the monkeys? And what is he doing on my bridge? If only there was an internet back in 67. Uh, oh, dear amazing. God. Can you imagine? I, I, don't, you... <laughs> I don't want to imagine. <laughs> oh man but uh but yeah you know so, so, so season three you know it's 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 interesting to talk about and, and you know that's what that's what we look for here on center because look let's let's face it guys star trek's 50 years old there's only 79 episodes of the original series there's only so many times you can talk about the trouble with tribbles or you know the city on ledge forever even though we did mention it in this episode uh it, it's interesting to kind of find new angles that's what kenny and i are always trying to do here find new angles on old material and thank goodness we have the, the kelvin timeline movies to talk about that's a whole another world of possibilities to give us in our wheelhouse here at standard orbit on our, our our modus operandi of discussion but yeah you're talking about stuff like season three or these random other episodes that nobody really talks about is it, it's fun because it's it's untapped ground and i don't feel like i'm just regurgitating something that someone said 30 times when i start talking about you know working from methuselah right it's yeah. like you no know, who talks about that episode yeah you know any final thoughts then? Uh, uh, not at all. Darren, I, I, I was actually being honest. I when I rewatched it recently, I've rewatched Star Trek a couple of times, obviously because I'm a big fan. But when I rewatched the third season, I was just I was just amazed at how much of what I recognized of Star Trek was there, despite the fact that there's a lot that is not Star Trek there, and it's you know there's a lot that's weird and, and uncomfortable and not very good. But there's also there's a lot there that is interesting and intriguing. But there's also a lot there as as we talked about that feels like it informed. A lot going forward that doesn't maybe get recognized as, as such you know i think that the third season is kind of the red-haired stepchild of the three years and understandably so because it's not as good as the first two but i think it is a very important part of the show's legacy and history and i think it's sort of fascinating to go back and to sort of look at it in that way absolutely well said well said well darren it's been fun talking uh star trek for you today if, if people want to find you elsewhere on the internet or otherwise where can they find you 
let's just keep it on the internet. I feel very uncomfortable uh, otherwise. But no, even you, you don't want to give out your personal address. I was, that, that's what I was going for there. But. Yeah, that, that was kind of coy, Zach. I like it. You play it cool. You're, you're like Kirk, you're like Spock more than Kirk. You're like Spock in the Cloud Miners. Uh, I've never I've never podcasted with a work of art before. Um, very good. But uh, you can find me uh, online at Twitter at Darren underscore Rooney. You can find me at the movie blog uh, with a zero instead of an O in, in the word movie. Um, I also podcast on the 250, which is a, a weekly podcast that looks at the top 250 movies of all time as well for IMDb. I occasionally podcast on the Xcast. In fact, myself and Zach, I think this week we'll be doing an episode so you can catch in and sort of catch this sort of repartee again. I've also very luckily, uh, I've had the opportunity to write a book on the X-Files, opening the X-Files, uh, which is available from all good booksellers now. So if you are interested in the X-Files, or if you know somebody coming up to Christmas who is interested in the X-Files, or even just have a public library that could do with a section on the X-Files, uh, please feel free to share the word and sort of get that out there. Um, I, a I section really of entirely that. your book. Uh, yeah, just over and over again. Because you never, you don't want to be in a situation where somebody arrives in and they're like, I really want that book on the X-Files written by this Irish guy, Darren Mooney, but all the other books are checked out. You don't want to take that risk. <laughs> I'd say buy in bulk. You can probably get a discount. That's what I'm going for here. But no, I am. I, I mostly discuss popular culture. So, for example, I recently finished reviewing uh, Deep Space Nine, all of Deep Space Nine, all seven years of it. And sort of when I was doing it, I thought I'd go back, I'd dig in to provide a bit of cultural context in terms of like where, what was happening in popular culture when the show was on, and in terms of also just stuff like behind the scenes stuff, which I mean, most people listening to this podcast probably already know, so it's very little interesting there. But they're just kind of, I like delving into stuff like that. And, and if you are interested in sort of long form reads or sort of like research sort of stuff, or even just like pop culture discussion, maybe, maybe. Maybe give it a look. Uh, hopefully it'll be of interest. I, I I hope anyway. Well, listeners, as you can tell, Darren is, is a well-read, well-spoken guy. He has got a lot of knowledge about a lot of things, and it's always, it's always a pleasure uh, delving into uh, to nerd discussion with you, Darren. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Zach. It's always a pleasure to talk with you as well. Like. Well, it's been fun talking about a third season of TOS today, but that's not the only thing going on on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Meta Treks. See, Mike, I think Stamets actually got it wrong. Actually, it's the Metachorians that allow Catrick communication to take place. No, no, no. That's the wrong franchise. Oh, wrong franchise. <laughs> Sorry. I see what you're describing as an attempt to kind of naturalize this mystical interpretation of Vulcan Catrick. The 602 Club. Right, because, I mean, they're starting off with this auction, and it seems like they're on a mission to figure out who is stealing and then go in this completely different direction of being concerned about warheads. <laughs> Earl Grey. Yeah, when I was thinking about this, I mean, there are a lot of, of scary scenes or, or episodes, but for me, it absolutely has to be Phantasms, where Data is is dreaming, and he sees Troy as a cake and has to take, like, the slice of her. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> that, that's no, scary? I mean, that... that well, okay, but... but this is also your within that one? scene. Hold on, hold okay, on. Okay, okay. To the journey. I always want to know why haven't they done a Garden of Forever movie in general? I, I, for me, that's like a, such a cool go-to oh, concept. Yeah. Like, if you're gonna make a Star Trek movie, get the Guardian of Forever in there. That would be awesome. And no one has ever thought that was cool enough to do yet. So yeah. we're doing it. Yeah, I mean, it never really gets reprised that much, does it? Except obviously in the animated series. Uh, we do get the Iconian gateways later, which are a similar sort of concept, aren't they? But but not the same. Well, they don't talk back to you. <laughs> I don't think you can travel through time with those, can you? I think they're more just space. The final frontier. These are the... Oh, sorry. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfn slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm, and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and of course in the Babel Conference. Type Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar. 
Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron on the network on Patreon. If you visit Patreon slash TrekFM, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash TrekFM, you'll find the current goals and different milestone contributions along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details on patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our great associate producers for Standard Orbit. Norman Lau, Tim Robertson, Nick Anastasio, Richard Marquez, and Corey Elrod. Yes, thank you guys so much for your support for both Standard Orbit and Trek FM. Uh, so, Ken, if people want to find you out there on the internet, where can they find you? Hey, you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference and engaging people when I when I have the opportunity. You can also find me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is at Boston SCPO, and we uh, we like to tweet out all our new episode information as soon as we get it, as well as well as our colleagues. So, look for me there. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H, and I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman series from the early 2000s, and you can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.